about my Bible this week. If you weren't here last week, you missed it. Got up here, got all ready, and realized I didn't have a Bible to preach from. So, I have decided that when I'm up here preaching, I'm going to quit letting the people who do children's time know what the message is about. Because y'all already heard it. So if you weren't paying attention, this part's for you. (laughs) First thing I did when I was preparing this week was to go out to one of the most important tools that any person who studies the Bible can have at their side when they're studying the Bible. Does anybody know what that tool is? A Bible. No. Good one. No. There are two tools that you need to have anytime you're studying the Bible. One is a dictionary. The other is a map. With those two tools, you will go far in your Bible study. Now, your dictionary does not have to be a Greek dictionary. It doesn't have to be a Hebrew dictionary. Just a plain old ordinary English dictionary is a good start. Because we Americans do English really, really poorly, right? In fact, I have heard the English language described not so much as a language, but more of a gang of words that will find other words and beat them up and kidnap them into the gang. The English language changes a lot. And so it's important to know what a word means, especially when you're reading a Bible translation that was translated and and put into bound form or digital form in the 70s or the 80s because words change. And then we have the added layer of complexity of church language. You guys know what I'm talking about? Church language Words that we hear in church that we assume everybody understands the meaning of. Like testimony. Right? How many of you have been through a testimony service in church? You ever, you ever seen one of those? I love those. Okay, and I'm going to pick on the predominant demographic in the room. And that would be those of us that are over the age of 45. Okay? Because in those testimony services, undoubtedly what would happen is some little old lady would come down to the microphone at the front of the church and tell everybody how she was saved when she was seven years old at a day camp or a Sunday school class. And that's phenomenal. But I always sat in the back of the church and wondered, what's happened since? If the only thing Jesus has done in your life was 70 years ago, there's a problem. And so I looked up the word testimony just so we can build a foundation for what that word means in English. And according to dictionary.com, it is the statement or declaration of a witness under oath, evidence in support of a fact or statement, otherwise known as proof. That is a testimony. Statement or declaration of a witness. 
So what is a witness? Because in church language, witnessing is a verb, right? Or your witness is the same as your testimony. So what does the word witness mean? In the form of a noun, it is an individual who, being present, personally sees or perceives a thing. A beholder, spectator, or eyewitness. And in the legal sense, it is a person who affords evidence or testimony. Those two words are really important when it comes to sharing the gospel with people. Now, I've told you all before that sharing the gospel is not just giving our testimony. Giving our testimony is important, like Alan said. And by the way, don't get rid of the testimony of, you know, when you were seven years old, you were saved. But update it every now and then. Include the new stuff that God's done. Include the little stuff that God has done. Because sometimes the little stuff makes a big impact. I don't know if you guys would believe it or not. But one of the most nerve-wracking things that I have ever, ever done is to stand here and preach. I know, you can't tell. I'm such a natural. You can laugh. That's okay. Standing here, preaching God's Word to God's people, scares the liver out of me. Danny will tell you the same thing. It's not public speaking. I can do that all day. That's something that God gifted me with. Sometimes I think He cursed me with it. I've been told by people I have the gift of making a short story long, which is why it's so good for me to be a public speaker. It's the fact that I'm preaching God's Word. And yet, He's given me that ability. Every time I come up here on the platform, every time I sit in a Sunday school class, every time I lead a Bible study, whether it's in Awana or any other format, God gives me that strength. That's part of my testimony. The other part of being a witness is to include the facts about who Jesus is. And in our passage today, which we're going to be picking up in verse 19 of John chapter 1, if you want to start flipping there, or for those of us in the digital age, poke, 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 right? Open the app on your phone, tap over to John, tap over to chapter 1, tap over to verse 19. That's how I do it. In that passage, we are going to see both the testimony of an eyewitness and the fact of Jesus' identity. Those are the two sides of the coin when it comes to sharing the gospel with people. Now, I'm going to take a stab in the dark here. The vast majority of us have been in church for a spell at least once or twice. So you probably know something of the story of John the Baptist, right? His mother, Elizabeth, Mary's cousin, barren for a long time, married to Zechariah the priest, right? 
Nod your head if it sounds familiar. Okay, remember, I need feedback, folks. If, if I wanted no feedback, I would just do this on camera and broadcast it to you. Zechariah was a priest. He had his time in the temple lighting the incense in the holy place. And then all of a sudden, the most terrifying event in his life happened. You have to remember that when the priests would go into the holy place to light the incense, they would have bells sewn on their robes just in case they had not purified themselves correctly and the angel of the Lord struck them dead. They would have a rope tied around their waist and people standing outside the curtain holding on to the rope so that if the rope suddenly yanked because their body fell over dead and the bells quit ringing, they could drag the body out because they weren't allowed to go in. And here he is, minding his own business, lighting the incense, and he and Elizabeth have been praying for children and praying for children and praying for children. It's only people who've never experienced children who pray for children. (laughs) I've had four of them. Uh, No, I'll pray for somebody else to have children. Praying for children, and all of a sudden, as he's lighting the incense, an angel shows up and says, don't be afraid. Why? Well, because that's the first thing you tell somebody after you do CPR and restart their heart. Because I imagine that's how Zechariah felt. And the angel tells him, guess what? You're going to have a son. And he thinks, no. And so the angel says, okay, you're going to have a son. He's going to be a prophet. He's going to have the spirit of the Lord. He's going to, he's going to be the spirit of Elijah. He's, I mean, all these great things. And oh, by the way, since you didn't believe me, you don't get to talk for the next nine months. So he blessed Elizabeth too. <laughs> Ladies who've born children, can you imagine your husband not being able to talk back while you're pregnant? <laughs> not being able to say something stupid? while you're pregnant, because the chances of that happening increase tenfold while she's pregnant, right? Because we do that sort of thing. And so all of this came to pass, and they named the baby John, and Zechariah can speak again, and he probably put his foot in his mouth ten minutes later, right? He was raised under the Nazarite vow. He had to stay away from strong drink and, and certain dietary restrictions, just like Samson, uh, except he was obedient. And from the time that John is born until he's introduced again as a prophet in the Gospels, what do we know about him? Nothing. Not a word. I mean, at least we get the picture of Jesus when he's about 12 and he's in the temple debating with the theologians. But of John, we hear nothing until he comes out of the Judean wilderness dressed in a a tunic of camel hair with a leather belt around his waist after having subsided on a diet of locusts and wild honey, right? And I know you all have noticed the, the beard, okay? Honey is one of the worst foods that I can come near. Honey and maple syrup, pancake syrup, oh, it's It's terrible. The only thing worse is chicken wings, because that's just not a pretty sight. But I can imagine the the trails, the bits of honeycomb, and the the, the locust legs stuck in the, 
look, he was a sight to behold. He was a prophet. And he came with a message that caused people to take notice. It had been roughly 400 years in Israel without a prophetic word being recorded. Now, I don't know if there was a prophet in that intervening 400 years. I do know we don't have their writings. So for all intents and purposes, for 400 years, God had gone radio silent with his people. Now, it's a good thing there was no turmoil in the Middle East during those 400 years, right? Everything was just kind of an even keel. Nothing big happened. No, a lot of things happened. The Medo-Persian Empire had fallen to the Greeks under Alexander the Great. After Alexander's uh, death, his kingdom was divided up into four quadrants, his four most powerful rulers, and they battled with each other until it was consolidated down to two. You had the northern and the southern, the Ptolemies and the Seleucids, for those of you that are history geeks like I am. And right in the middle between the two of them was Palestine. And so they would conquer the land and take it over. And then the other group would conquer the land and take it over. And then the other group would conquer the land and take it over. If Palestine was, since it's Super Bowl season, a political football tossed back and forth between these two empires for a number of years. And then those empires were conquered by the next great superpower, Rome. Rome took over both of them, basically, expanded and filled the void, and conquered Palestine. And in all that time, in all of that stuff going on, what had the people heard from God? Psst, nothing. So they had to wonder... Has God had, finally had enough and, and decided to just kick us to the curb? I'm sure there were some who held on to his promises that he had made to Abraham. But there had to be those who wondered, where did God go? And so when John comes out of the wilderness looking like a prophet, sounding like a prophet, and quite frankly probably smelling like a prophet, the people of Judea noticed. He got their attention. His message was clear. Repent and be baptized for the kingdom of God is at hand. He commanded them to repent and demonstrate that repentance by being baptized in the Jordan River. We'll talk about baptism here in, in Israel in just a minute, but that was a big deal. And his reasoning for this, his reason for calling them to repent because God's about to establish his kingdom and you don't want to be caught not ready. Now I ask you to stand as I read our passage this morning. John chapter 1, verses 19 through 34. Hear the word of the Lord. 
And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, Then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These, took, these things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Let's pray. Father, above all this morning, we want for your word to change our hearts. Father, do not let us leave this message the same as we were when we came in. We pray this because of Jesus. Amen. Please have a seat. There's a lot of similarities there in verses 19 through 28 uh, that look a lot like a trial. Right? Step one, identify the witness. When you get up on the stand, before you take the oath, please identify yourself to the court. Well, the priests and the Levites, and let's talk about the priests and the Levites for just a minute. I mentioned this last week. The priests predominantly who served in the temple, most of them were from the party of the Sadducees. The Sadducees had a very, very big representation within the priesthood. The priests, the Sadducees, many of them held that the only true Scripture was the first five books, just the Pentateuch. The rest of the books were important, but Scripture was the Pentateuch. They denied almost every supernatural interaction that God had in the rest of the Old Testament. They came with Levites, who would have been mostly from the party of the Pharisees. The Pharisees being the experts in the law. The Pharisees, which that, that word actually means the pure ones, right? They were the ones who sought to guide Israel to keep people from being unrighteous. And I know the Pharisees, we like to turn them into a scapegoat. They were evil, they were, they were terrible people, and they were human beings, and they were trying to do their best. The problem is our best always, always on a, on a continuum, on a line from end to end, 
where one end is uh, legalism and the other end is licentiousness, which means you can do whatever you want, it doesn't matter. In and of ourselves, we will always be on one end of that line. We will either fall towards legalism or we will fall towards licentiousness. And for believers, particularly, we tend to fall towards legalism because it's just easier. Come on, I I was just picking on praying for kids, right? Raising children, it is much easier to be a legalist than it is to be a centrist on that line. Because instead of me trying to teach my three-year-old the principle of why he shouldn't do something, it's a whole lot easier to say, because if you do that, you're going to suffer consequences. Right? So the Levites were from the Pharisaical party, the hyper-conservative theological arm, and the priests were from probably the Sadducee party, the hyper-liberal theological arm. And they came out together to see John. The Sanhedrin, ruled by the Pharisees at the time, the Sanhedrin sent them to figure out, who is this guy? Now, it seems obvious, right? They asked the question, who are you? And he said, I'm not the Christ. Okay, all right. Then are you Elijah? No, I'm John. Well, are you the prophet? No, I'm not the prophet either. Now, let's go back through some of these these questions. First off, are you the promised Messiah? Are you the one who's coming to establish God's kingdom? No, I'm not. Okay, good. We don't have to worry about that. Our positions are safe. And that's really what the Pharisees and the Sadducees were concerned with. Our positions are safe. Are you Elijah? Well, this has actually led a lot of people to wondering if first century Judaism expected reincarnation. That's not the case. All right? Um, First off, if you go to 2 Kings 2.11, you don't have to go there. This is just a reference for you. You can write it down on the back of your bulletin where it says notes. That's what this is for. Second Kings verse, uh, uh, chapter 2, verse 11. Elijah is recorded as being taken up to heaven in a whirlwind in a chariot of fire. Okay? I have seen some funerals in my day. I have never seen a whirlwind in a chariot of fire. Well, I think that would be awesome. <laughs> Elijah is one of two people who are not said to have died. Does that mean he didn't die? He was just taken up into heaven bodily? I know it's pretty telling when it's pretty universal throughout Scripture. There are only two people that it is recorded that they did not die. Okay? So it may have been thought that Elijah was really chilling with God and was going to come back. In Malachi, now remember, 400 years previous, the last recorded prophet, Malachi, chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. That's another one for you to write down and look at. 
Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6 says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So God said through Malachi, I'm sending Elijah. Elijah was taken up bodily into heaven, and God said, I'm sending him back. Okay, now, you remember last week I told you when you're reading Scripture that it's important to have a mirror or a front-facing camera on your cell phone so that you don't think, what kind of idiots were these people? Right? Because it's really easy. If all I had was that explanation, Elijah was taken up bodily into heaven and God said, I'm sending him back. I would expect Elijah is going to show back up. Right? There's a lot of stuff that God says that we don't understand how he's going to make it work out. There's a lot of stuff about God we don't understand. It's almost like there's a passage in Scripture that says, my ways are not your ways, my thoughts are not your thoughts. Right? My brain is finite. It is confined in a little tiny space. God's is not. So whether he meant to send Elijah bodily, which I don't think is the case, or not... He did promise that there was going to be a prophet, at least in the spirit of Elijah, that was going to show back up. In fact, he made that promise to Zechariah that the son that Elizabeth was going to bear was going to come in the spirit of Elijah. In Luke chapter 1, verse 16 and 17, that's where that's located. Go ahead and write that down. Luke 1, 16 and 17. This is exactly what it says. He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. In Matthew chapter 11, verses 13 and 14, Jesus says this, For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John, and if you're willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. So now it looks like we have a conflict in the Bible because the angel told Zechariah that John was going to come in the spirit of Elijah and Jesus tells his disciples that John was the Elijah to come, but then John tells the priests and the Levites, I'm not Elijah. What in the world? Why couldn't this be easy? Right? Why did I have to pick such a hard passage? I think I pointed out to you guys before that the reason that I do verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book is so that I can't sidestep the hard stuff. (laughs) Because if it was up to me, I'd skip the hard stuff. Remember I said John was raised under the Nazarite vow? Like another figure from the Old Testament? Who was that figure from the Old Testament? Samson. Samson. Samson, who was, who was a, a reward for faithfulness to his mother, who, who prayed for, for a child, and she, she offered to dedicate that child to the Lord. And, and I wager a guess, like most mothers, she told her son just exactly how precious and special he was. And what did he turn into? How much of that vow did he keep once he aged up enough that he could keep it on his own? 
You're not supposed to come into contact with wild or with dead animals. Yeah, but that honey looks really good in that lion carcass. You guys thought the locust was bad. Right? Everything he could do to break the Nazarite vow, he did. Okay? So perhaps, because we don't know anything about John, perhaps Elizabeth and Zechariah didn't lavish John with all of those promises of the angel. Maybe they didn't tell him, you were something special. You're all that in a bag of chips because God said you were going to be the best thing ever to happen. I don't know. I don't think it was false humility. I think, honestly, he answered that he wasn't Elijah because he's not Elijah. He's John. The spirit of Elijah, the spirit that filled Elijah, was the spirit of prophecy, the spirit of God. It was the Holy Spirit telling God's people God's truth. John was filled with that that, that spirit. Then they asked him if he was the prophet. Notice, not a prophet, the prophet. Now there are really two things this could indicate. Most of the time when we hear somebody mention the prophet, they're talking about Isaiah. But because the priests were involved, right? Remember the priests didn't hold to the rest of the Old Testament. It is highly likely that they were referring to a phrase in Deuteronomy when Moses is just about to pass from this world and he says there will come a prophet to come greater than I am. That could be what they're asking about. And John says, no, that's not me. Okay. Now, I can, I can imagine being a prosecutor in this case. All right, so you're not the Christ. You're not Elijah. You're not the prophet. Who are you then? What authority do you have if you're not the Christ, if you are not the prophet, if you are not Elijah? What? Who are you? And he says, I'm the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, just like Isaiah said. I'm the fulfillment of prophecy. The kingdom of God is coming. God wants you to be prepared. Well, that's about the biggest non-answer in the world, isn't it? Who are you? I'm nobody. But the message is, be prepared. The kingdom of the Lord's coming. When we look at witnessing and testifying and sharing our testimony, it is important for us to remember that who we are is not important. See, the little old lady testimony that I was talking about, back when I was seven, there was a, a summer camp and somebody shared the gospel with me and I, I was saved. I accepted Jesus. I walked the aisle. I was baptized. Who's the focus on? Me. Let me share a testimony with you. 
1998, when I was approximately 24 years old, I was invited to a conference by my father. It was a Promise Keepers conference. Kira was approximately two year or two weeks old at that point in time. Two weeks. So Steph had two children under three. My dad said, I want you to go Friday night, Saturday to this conference. I said, Dad, I can't. Steph's got a new... And Steph says, shut up and go. So I went. And I sat through Friday. I'd been to church before. I knew the songs, some of them, and I like to sing. I'm terrible at it, but I like it. You know, music is is good. And when you've got 5,000 men in a stadium, it's okay if you can't carry a tune in a bucket because it's just loud. And then on Saturday, about three-quarters of the way through the Saturday session, we ended just after afternoon, the speaker got up and he was talking to this group of men about their struggle with pornography. By the way, if you have a man in your life who says, I don't struggle with pornography, he's probably lying to you. Okay? I'm just saying. And during that message, the only thing I can tell you is that I cease to exist. Because at that point, using the, the, the phrase, and I will never forget this phrase ever, those women that you are looking at are somebody else's daughters. And I had two of them at home. And at that point, the hard shell around this heart, God Almighty took a little tiny hammer of the Holy Spirit and went tap, tap, tap. Just like cracking a soft-boiled egg for breakfast. And at that point in time, Jesus reached into my life and changed who I am. And at that point in my life, that struggle with pornography was yanked, physically yanked out of my life because God knows I'm an idiot, okay? If he had left me with that struggle, I never would have realized anything changed. And so I went home, didn't speak to my dad the whole way back. The whole way back from the stadium, back to our house in New Jersey, didn't hardly say a word. Got home, gave Steph a kiss, gave the kids a kiss, sat down at my computer, which, by the way, my computer was the heart of my pornography addiction. And at that point in time, God, God led me to delete, to format, and to physically destroy all of the media that I had in my house with that on it. God did it. Bill didn't. God did it. So that's a testimony. Who's the subject? Who's the object? I'm the one that the action was done to. Okay? And so, John tells them in prophet fashion, I'm just the voice. I'm the tool in the toolbox. I'm the megaphone. God is saying, prepare the way. God is saying, make the path straight.
Now, the next thing they ask was, what authority do you have to call people to be baptized? Now, that seems kind of weird for us since we're in a Baptist church. Baptism is not a weird thing for us, right? How many of you are first century Jews? No? Okay, that's good. Baptism in first century Palestine for an Israelite, for a Hebrew, was not a regular occurrence. It only happened under very specific conditions. One of those conditions would be for a priest who was serving in the temple. And if you go back to the book of Leviticus and, and, and you read your way through the Levitical law, buy yourself an ice cream cone because you deserve it. But if you read through the Levitical law, right, you will see that the Levites and the priests, before they could serve in the temple or in the tabernacle, they had to go through purification washings and sacrifices. That was baptism. So the priests would do it. A person who had been caught in, or a person who wanted people to know they had been caught in, a particularly heinous sin, right? Because sometimes we have that false humility, that, that false testimony. Hey, look, I used to be absolutely terrible, but then, but then I repented, and I'm going to make it public by being baptized to show everybody that I've been cleansed. Because I did that. And then finally, if you were a Gentile who had converted to Judaism, you would go through the rite of baptism. Now, who's John calling to be baptized? All of Israel. Repent and be baptized. He is insinuating that the entire nation of Israel... The priests, the Levites, the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the average ordinary Joe on the street corner, all of them, he is calling and insinuating to them, y'all are dirty, you need a bath. You need a spiritual bath because God's coming. Is it any wonder they want to know, who gave you the authority to do this? Come on now. Now think about it. Would you like it if somebody came up and got in your face and said, you've sinned, you need to repent? No. I don't know anybody who responds favorably to that. That's what John was doing. So presumably they would have expected that if John had said, yes, I'm the Messiah. Oh, well, okay. Lead the way. I'll be the first to get baptized, right? If John had said, yes, I am Elijah and this nation is unclean, you need to be baptized. You got it. I am the prophet that Moses spoke of. Or I am Isaiah, come back to tell you that you need to prepare the way for the Lord and that is for you to repent and be baptized. Okay, And what was John's answer? Oh, I'm just baptizing with water. <laughs> you want to get your nose bent out of shape by me asking everybody to participate in a symbol that shows that they are repenting. 
I'm just baptizing with water. But there's one who's coming that you guys don't know yet. And he is so much greater than I am. I'm not even worthy to untie his shoes. Who's he talking about? Jesus. Jesus, again, John is pointing to Jesus. If we're going to take some principles out of this passage, this isn't just a history lesson. It may sound that way. (laughs) But historical context is important. If we're going to take a principle out of this lesson and apply it to our lives as Christians, as obedient Christians, hopefully, right? We have to take that principle that when you are presenting a witness or a testimony to somebody, you've got to testify about Jesus, not about you. At this point, we hear nothing further about this interaction. In fact, it says, these things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. That's it. Did they go back? Presumably. Now, I imagine, this is some, some, some imaginative license on my part, because I looked in Matthew, I looked in Mark, I looked in Luke, I looked here in John. There is nothing about what happened when they got back to the Pharisees who sent them. There is nothing about the Sanhedrin's response. But I have to imagine, when these guys got back, and they said, yeah, there's this guy who is calling people out by droves. People are lined up from the city gates all the way to the Jordan River, across into Bethany. People are coming from the Bethany side, and they are listening to this guy. This He looks like a prophet. He sounds like a prophet. He smells like a prophet. But he's telling us he's not the prophet, and he's not Elijah, and he's not the Christ, but people are responding to him. And he said, there's somebody else coming who's even greater. I imagine there was probably a great deal of consternation on the part of the Sanhedrin because, again, they were concerned with their political place in the spectrum of things, and they were looking for a political deliverer. And all of a sudden, we're showing up with a religious theme, not a political theme. Repentance has nothing to do with getting rid of Rome. Repentance has nothing to do with saving the the people of Israel from Roman oppression or from foreign oppression. Repentance has everything to do with you calling me a sinner. I don't like that. So then we move forward to the following day. As he was back at the Jordan River, John saw Jesus coming toward him and he recognized him. He may have recognized him because they are cousins. But again, we don't know anything about John's life after he was born until he shows up again. We don't, we don't have anything about Jesus, you know, we don't have anything about Mary going to see Elizabeth after the babies are born. Mary went to Elizabeth, well, she was pregnant, so it was Elizabeth. That's the only recorded encounter we have between these two. 
But he recognized Jesus. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? The only other place in Scripture where we have an encounter between these two, he recognized Jesus in utero. Mary shows up at Elizabeth's house and she speaks to Elizabeth. And what happened? The baby in Elizabeth's womb jumped. Huh. How about that? I wonder how he recognized Jesus. Because that same spirit's within him. And he announced Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, I read this. I had to read this a couple of times. Verse 29, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Who's he talking to? Anybody who could hear him. We know that John had gathered disciples who followed him. They would have been present. We know that the people of Judea were lined up coming to the Jordan River, so there were some that were standing close enough that they could hear him. And I really can't imagine that this guy who's shouting, the voice crying in the wilderness, I really can't imagine that he whispered it. There's another principle for you. When we talk about Jesus, don't be shy. Behold, the Lamb of God. And then he refers to Jesus as the one he had spoken about the day before, the one who ranks before me because he was before me. Did you catch that? He was before me. Elizabeth was pregnant first. John's older. He wasn't talking about chronological age. <laughs> He ranks before me because in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word was in the beginning. He ranks before me because He's before everything. I myself didn't know Him, but it was for this purpose that I came baptizing with water so that He might be revealed to Israel. I didn't know him. I had no idea who he was. So how does he know who he is now? But by the Spirit. Luke one forty one, Matthew 3. Matthew 3 that Dave wrote, read this morning. The, the more detailed account of the... Baptism of Jesus, and John's arguing with him. I love that. Remember, baptism was a sign of repentance, and Jesus came to John to be baptized. And John recognized Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, which means he is the spotless one, the sinless one. This is why John says, time out. You should be baptized in me. And Jesus says, no, it has to be this way for us to fulfill all righteousness. Why? Why? I mean, that, that really confused me for a very long time. Why did Jesus say, no, it has to be this way? Because Jesus was part of Israel. 
And God's prophet, John, was commanding Israel to be baptized. Jesus is part of the family. This is corporate repentance. This is an opportunity for Israel, national Israel, to turn away from all the ways that they had disobeyed God. Even if it wasn't personal. Because John didn't say, repent for adultery and be baptized. Repent for lying and be baptized. Repent for theft and be baptized. He said, repent. And so Jesus said, this is obedience to my father. And so John baptized him. And then as he came out of the water, the heavens opened and the spirit descended on Jesus. I don't know what it means as a dove. I don't know if that means that there was like, you know, the, the TV animated, you know, glowing dove that settled on Jesus. I, I don't know what that means. John, the apostle who wrote this, probably didn't know what that meant. This is how you put into words things that you can't understand. I imagine it means that the Spirit descended on Jesus gently. More like a dove than like a falcon. Okay? Because had the Spirit descended like a falcon, it would have come down like a rocket. Bam! But it settled on Jesus, and then God spoke. I love it when God speaks. doesn't happen very often. I can honestly tell you I have never heard the audible voice of God, because I'm still alive. Oh, I've heard the Holy Spirit speak many times, along with that whole, you know, you need to be a pastor. I know. <laughs> Stop it. But God speaks and he says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. So John says, oh, ooh, ooh, I recognize that voice. Now, we don't know anything about John's call to be a prophet, but we do know that people do not just take it out of their mind to become a prophet. Because that does not bode well for a person in Israel. Because if you don't have God's blessing to be a prophet and you say something that doesn't come to pass, what happens? You die. False prophets get executed. And so John was called, presumably. It happened in his life that God spoke to him and said, you will be my prophet. And so when he heard God's audible voice, he went, ah, oh, I know that voice. God's son, God, the one who called me to be a prophet, told me this one was coming. That's him. He told John to watch out for the one who would have the Spirit descend and remain on him. And he told John, that will be the one that baptizes with the Holy Spirit that John told the priests and the Levites about. I cannot imagine anything more terrifying than to know how far separated you are from God if you are reluctant to undergo the baptism that John was calling people to because you didn't think you had any unrighteousness to repent from, I can't imagine anything more terrifying than to hear there's going to be one coming who baptizes with God's Spirit. The all-consuming fire of God's Spirit. 
You don't want to get wet. What's the alternative? And so John testified and he bore witness to everyone who would listen that Jesus was the Son of God. See, just like us, John received a commission from God. We received a commission from God. It's recorded for us in Matthew chapter 28 at the very end of Matthew's gospel. As Jesus is preparing to ascend up into heaven, he tells his disciples, We're disciples. That's us. He tells his disciples that all authority on heaven and earth has been given unto him. And so, as we go, therefore, or in southern vernacular, since she's going, make disciples of all people, teaching them all I have commanded you and baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We've been given a commission. He was called out to preach the message of the coming of God's kingdom. We have been called out to preach the presence of God's kingdom. I don't want you to think that we are prophets, capital P, just like John. Because as I told you, I have not been, I've, I've not been given the audible voice of God that says, go dress in a coat of camel hair with a leather belt and have honey and bits of bug in your beard and, and tell people that the kingdom of God is coming. No, my mission is different. I have heard the Spirit of God telling me, go feed my sheep. Just like he told Peter. Just like Peter, I've struggled. God, they're people. They're hard-headed, like me. They're hard-hearted, like me. They're stubborn and they've got baggage, like me. I don't want to deal with that. Go feed my sheep. Every one of us has been given a commission. Every one of us has been called to go where we are to make disciples. If you look at Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Another one for you to look up and to memorize if you don't know it. Jesus tells the disciples, You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the other most parts of the earth. Not, I'm giving you the opportunity to be. Not if you choose to, you can be. You will be my witnesses. What kind of witnesses are we going to be? You know, you, you often hear the, it's almost become cliche, the cliche question of, you know, if you were put on trial for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? Right? You're on trial for being a Christian every day that you walk in this world. Is your testimony enough to convict you? Or does your testimony end at that vacation Bible school 50 years ago? 
Does your testimony end when you walked an aisle, said a prayer, and took a dip in the tank? I, I hate to seem sacrilegious over the act of baptism. It is an act of obedience. It is a sacred ordinance. I've been in it. It's a fiberglass tub full of water that hopefully somebody ran the heater in. It's just water. The obedience is in the heart. But if your testimony stops when you got wet, I'm sorry, that ain't a testimony. As a matter of fact, that's a tragedy. Is your testimony enough to convict you for being a Christian? There's two sides to the coin of sharing the gospel with people. One side is the gospel message of who Jesus is. The other side is our testimony of what Jesus is doing. Stop thinking about testimony as has done. Is doing. One of my favorite things, and we're going to beat on it when we go through the rest of this book, one of my favorite things in the, in the Gospel of John is Jesus' I am statements. It's one of my favorite studies to do. And the reason why is because, as I've told you guys, I am a word nerd. I am a fan of understanding language and using it appropriately. And I cannot help but emphasize the fact that when Jesus uses those I am statements, the words that he uses are the same words that the, the Greek linguists who transcribed the Old Testament used to go back to Moses' encounter with God in the Midianite desert. When Moses said, who will I say has sent me, God uses the phrase, I am that I am. Okay, now in the English language, there is one verb that we use all the time. We use it in the present tense, we use it in the past tense, we use it in the future tense, right? We use it in all of the, the different aspects of speech, and it is the verb to be, okay? And, and I'm going to throw back to uh, Shakespeare and the beginning of Hamlet, right? The, the famous soliloquy, to be or not to be, that is the question. Well, that, that question is a question of existence, to continue to exist or not. That's the question, because he's contemplating whether he needs to continue on with life or not. To be means to exist. The past tense of that would be was. The present tense is is. And the first person present tense is am. So if I was to talk about myself in the past tense, I would say I was. If I talked about my future, future self, I would say I will be. If I talk about myself in the present tense, I would say I am. And how did God introduce himself? I am. He is. Not he was, not he will be. And in John's gospel, Jesus says, I am. So when we share our testimony about what Jesus is doing, it's because he is. Not he was, and not he will be. He is.
So use that coin that you have that's called the Christian life. You have the gospel. And you have Jesus working in your life now. Those are the tools to share Jesus with the world out there.